You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, let's uh, go ahead and get started with our lesson continuing the study of the prophetic biography, the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Stating the obvious here, I know it's election night tonight, and uh, some folks might have an interest in going home. Some folks might have an interest in going home and uh, watching, you know, the results kind of rolling in and whatnot. Um, so, inshallah, I'll keep today's session a little bit shorter uh, than usual, just to accommodate anybody, inshallah. And of course, it has nothing to do with my own uh, prioritization or anything. But uh, it's very convenient. Tayyib, inshallah. So, as I was saying, Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. So, continuing the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. In the previous session, we talked about a couple of different issues, a couple of different stories. We kind of continued the topic of the aggression, the violence uh, against the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And we talked about that very uh, interesting or uh, even entertaining story about Abu Jahl becoming intimidated uh, by the Prophet ﷺ because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was sending his divine help. Uh, to the Prophet ﷺ. So when Abu Jahl would look at the Prophet ﷺ, um, you know that one time, the story we talked about where he saw a huge camel, like almost like a wild camel, um, standing behind the Prophet ﷺ. And of course, physically one was not there, but this was the intimidation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to the Prophet ﷺ to keep Abu Jahl in check a little bit. Um, and then we talked about the very beautiful, powerful story of Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib, Hamza radiallahu anhu, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, how he accepted Islam, and how he became, he was always loyal and loving towards the Prophet ﷺ, but how he became such a devout, firm believer, and how he became such a staunch supporter of Islam and Muslims. I wanted to continue, I mentioned this at the end of last week's session, I wanted to continue by mentioning the, a couple of more of the individual stories of, a, of some of the early Muslims. And I understand we've been kind of talking about this over the last few weeks, but I feel it's beneficial because there's something very interesting. Uh, one of our objectives throughout this study of the seerah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ has been to not just tell the story, to not just chronicle the biography of the Prophet ﷺ, but to extract lessons along the way. To take the relevant pertinent lessons and see how this relates back to us as an ummah and as communities today. What can we personally, family-wise, community-wise, what, what can we learn from the life of the Prophet ﷺ as well? And one of the very interesting lessons, by studying a little bit of detail, just a little bit, not full biographical sessions, but a little bit about some of these early individuals who accepted Islam, and talking about how they accepted Islam, where they were coming from, what their perspective and their situation was, and, and we see the diversity. We see the variety, we see the different backgrounds, we see the different challenges that they were facing. And what it does is it, it strengthens us as a community. It makes all of us feel like we belong. Because a problem today, believe it or not, we know this is a problem with non-Muslims, but believe it or not, it's a problem even in the Muslim community that there's this uh, incorrect um, assumption, there's this misunderstanding, misinformation that the ummah or the Muslim community is monolithic in nature. That we are homogenous. I know it doesn't help to use one big word to explain another big word, but what that means in simple language is that we are all the same. We're a bunch of drones, a bunch of clones. You know, I don't know if you have any Trekkies, but the Borg, right? No, absolutely not. Okay, never mind. So, but you know, in this TV show, they had this thing called the Borg, where everybody were like these androids or these machines or these robots, and everybody was centrally connected back to one central machine, and that central machine connected, controlled everybody else, and everybody just pretty much did whatever information was being put out, and they put the information back in, and everyone's networked and connected. And there's this understanding, like I said, in the non-Muslim community, that we're like that, 
And even more tragically, there's, that, there's the impression within the Muslim community. The outer line, the fringes of the Muslim community are under the impression being a devout Muslim, being Muslim, being religious, means we got to go ahead and basically wipe exa- uh, completely who we are and we got to fit into this one exact mold and we basically have to become a machine and a robot, a clone of all these other Muslims. And by the way, when I say the fringe of the Muslim community is under this impression, it's not that much more of a fringe when we're talking about 90% of the community. But believe it or not, 10% is actually a generous number, but 10% of the community is towards the center and that fringe that I'm talking about, that is if not on the edge or teetering on the edge of Muslim or not Muslim, they're at least standing very near that border and that boundary. And so it's very important to to dispel these notions to do away with these misunderstandings. And learning about some of these early Muslims is very helpful in this regard. So, and, and they're also very inspirational stories and they tell us about how the Prophet ﷺ was doing the da'wah. How the Prophet ﷺ was delivering the message, how he was interacting with people, how was he welcoming people into the community at a very, very difficult time. So, Another very noteworthy individual who would later on go on to be one of the most noteworthy and reputable and famous of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ was a man by the name of Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So Abu Dhar was his kunya um, and actually this story is narrated by um, Ibn Ab- the more detailed version is narrated by Ibn Abbas But the shorter version of the story that Imam al-Bayhaqi ta'ala mentions Is actually related um, by um, some of the family members of Abu Dhar So the more detailed version narrated by Abdullah bin Abbas And it's mentioned by Imam Bukhari ta'ala He mentions that Abu Dhar, this man, this individual is from the tribe of Ghifar and when he heard, and he was actually a very respectable leader and individual from his tribe. He was a very a successful businessman. And so he was, very, he was an honest, good man. He was very successful in business. So he was well respected in his community. When he heard about the Prophet but he was very intelligent and thoughtful. So when he heard about the Prophet proclaiming his message and preaching in Mecca, and the numbers as we've been talking about over the last few weeks were growing, 40 people, 50 people, now Hamza radiallahu anhu, and different people coming into the mix. And it kind of started to create some rumblings outside of Mecca. That there's some, there's some unrest in Mecca. There are some rumblings going on in Mecca. There's some issues there. And when he heard about this, he immediately sent his brother. He said, He said that, go to that valley, referring to Mecca, and find out for me about this individual. Find out everything you can about this man who claims that he's a prophet and that news comes to him from the sky. And go and listen to him and then come back to me. So the man went, uh, so the brother of Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu goes to Mecca, comes to the Prophet ﷺ, sits in and listens to what some of the Prophet ﷺ has to say, and then returns back to his tribe, the people of Ghifar, comes to his brother Abu Dhar, and he says, رَأَيْتُهُ Now listen, so remember he was sent on a task. Just go and listen and come back. So he went, he listened, of course did the job, I mean his brother asked him to, but at the same time, what we can assume from the narration is, he didn't stay for very, very long. He stayed, listened for a little while, and then basically brought back some information from there. He said, He said that I saw him and he was telling people, instructing people to have good character. I mean, just think about this fact that this, these are the early days of Mecca. There are literally three or four dozen Muslims. They're constantly under attack. All of what we've talked about previously is going on. All the, you know, but some of the narrations say that this was very, very early. Some of the narrations say this was right off in the very beginning of Nubuwa and Prophethood. And Allah knows best. But He says that, I saw Him, so regardless of that fact, in the early period of Islam, few Muslims, a couple of dozen Muslims, under attack, being oppressed, so many different things to worry about. And the Prophet ﷺ, had, he had such a heavy emphasis 
on character, on manners, on akhlaq, on the way people conduct themselves, the way people walk and talk, the way they, they, they treat other people. He had such a heavy emphasis on that, that when a man comes from out of town and just kind of sits on the corner, on the edge, and just listens in a little bit, and then returns back, it just so happens that what he hears even at that time is more emphasis on akhlaq, on manners. So think about how heavy of an emphasis that was in the da'wah and the message of the Prophet Because it matters. Very simply put, because it matters. Do you know the second, I talked about this in a f- quite a few sessions back, but the second revelation according to many of the scholars of Ulum Al-Qur'an was the beginning of Surah number 68, Surah Qalam. وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ So that the Prophet ﷺ would know that no matter what period of you know, prophethood or delivering the message or preaching it may be, and no matter what exactly are, is the situation or the dynamic uh, where, uh, amongst the people, you have to conduct yourself with the supreme level of manners that you have been granted and given. And at the same time, he's also being told that this needs to be a heavy emphasis in your message, in your preaching as well. And so the Prophet ﷺ is preaching this. Because that is a manifestation of the internal condition of the human being. Our manners, how we talk to people, how we conduct ourselves with people, how we deal with people, is a direct Direct, not indirect. It is a direct result and manifestation of what is in our heart. We should make no mistakes, we should have no qualms about that. That's a huge problem we have today. We consider manners almost like the seasoning on top. You know, the little dressing on top, the garnish. That's the word I was looking for, the garnish. People don't even know what that is. You know, it's that useless stuff they put on top of your food when you go to a nice restaurant. Alright, to make you feel better about dropping 20 bucks for a plate. When they put that little useless thing that when you get your plate, the first thing you put on the side, that little stuff on the top, that's the garnish. Unfortunately, today we have the assumption that, you know, this akhlaq and manners and so just a little garnish on top. But iman and salah and siyam and dhikr and tilawah, that's who I am. But we have to understand not to undermine the importance of those things, but what is my level of sincerity in those things? What is the quality of my prayer in my siyam, in my dhikr, in my tilawah will be reflected in my manners, in my character, in my akhlaq. And so the Prophet ﷺ is emphasizing that, hammering away at it. Secondly, if the objective and the mission is for these candles to light more candles, for these illuminated hearts to enlighten and illuminate other dark hearts, If that is the objective here, well guess what? That doesn't happen through eloquent speech, it doesn't happen through a pamphlet or a brochure or anything else. That happens and that occurs through the character and the manners and how you treat people. So this heavy emphasis was there. So he says, I saw him that he was emphasizing, commanding people to have good character, good manners, good conduct. And he was speaking something that definitely was not poetry. And remember Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu and his brother, of course, by extension, we can assume. These are educated people, enlightened people, well-traveled people. So he says, look, I've heard quite a bit. I've been around the block. I've, you know, I, I kind of know what I'm talking about. What he was saying definitely was not poetry, but it was something powerful. So Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu says, مَا شَفَيْتَنِي مِمَّا أَرَدْتُ He says, you haven't satisfied what I was looking for. Saying, basically what he's trying to say is, thank you very much, you know, I really appreciate the effort, it's really great the information you're bringing back, I'm not done yet, I'm not satisfied, I need to know more. فَتَزَوَّدَ وَحَمَلَ شَنَّةً فِيهَا مَاءٌ حَتَّى قَدِمَ مَكَّافَةَ الْمَسْجِدِ So it talks about how he basically packed up, prepared, jumped on his transportation and set out immediately towards Mecca. Now when he reaches Mecca, he's looking for the Prophet ﷺ, but he's never seen him before. He doesn't know where to look, he doesn't know who he's looking for, he's trying to look around and he doesn't want to ask about him. Because he was smart enough to know situation in Mecca, and some narrations even say that he kind of heard the chitter chatter around the Haram and around Mecca, where people, you know, he kind of heard, you know, some people being kind of angry or upset. So he realized, I can't just straight up walk up to somebody and be like, hey, who's Muhammad? Because they'll be like, why? What do you want with him? Are you one of them too? And then I'll be in trouble. So he said, I decided to keep to myself and just kind of bide my time. So he says, nighttime came. I sat around the Haram all day long looking for something. And nighttime came. 
And actually the narration, I kind of, I kind of just flew through it in Arabic. But he was in such a hurry. Abu Dhar is a businessman. And in fact, some narration tells that he was actually quite wealthy before Islam. So he could have properly packed his provisions and gotten a bunch of money and taken a tent, taken a bunch of food and all this stuff. But he was in such a hurry. That yearning for the truth, that thirst for the truth was so strong in him that he felt compelled to just leave right away. So he left without any proper preparations. He says, nighttime came and I just laid down in the corner of the haram. I didn't know what to do, I didn't know where to go. So I just got tired, I just kind of laid down. I figured nobody's coming now. Let me just pass out and sleep here. Like travelers or wafers or you know, just wanderers would just kind of do that. So he said, I just kind of drifters. So he said, I just kind of laid down in the corner. Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Ali bin Abi Talib. Young man, he's probably at this point, he's 13, 14 years old. Of course, being trained or if this is happening earlier, then he's 10, 11, 12 years old. So anyways, he's a young man, mature for his age. He's a believer. He's being trained directly by the Prophet ﷺ. Imagine you're not just your Nabi, but your teacher and your mentor being Rasulullah ﷺ. So I mean, imagine the quality and the character of this young man. So he's a very observant, intelligent young man. And he looks around and he sees this man sleeping there. And he's the son of Abu Talib. Ali radiallahu is the son of Abu Talib. He knows Makkah. And he knows the people of Makkah. And he says, that guy looks like he's from out of town. And he looks like a nice, well-mannered, well-dressed individual out of town sleeping in a corner like that, that doesn't add up. Because if, he, if, he's, if he's of the status that he looks and he behaves and he dresses, then he'd have some money or he'd know somebody in town or he'd be able to take up boarding or rooming with somebody. But he's sleeping like that and he doesn't look like a drifter, like something's not adding up. So Ali radiallahu anhu, goes up to him and says that, do you need a place to stay? Do you need a place to stay? So he says, yes, actually I do. So he goes, come with me. I'll make some room for you. And he takes him over to, you know, maybe Abu Talib's home or, you know, since Ali radiallahu anhu is a part of Banu Hashim, he takes him over to somebody's house or guest quarters or a guest room that, you know, the family or the tribe has. And he puts him up in there and he says, here you go. And he brings him some food and he goes, here's some food. Eat some food, get some rest. And in the morning, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Go about your business. So he says, you know, thank you very much. And in the morning, Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu sets out again, goes to the haram, sits down like a hawk. He's keeping an eye, keeping an eye on everything. Whole day passes, nothing happens. So again, he's tired, he's exhausted. He just kind of lies down in a corner. I guess another day passes. Ali radiallahu anhu kind of half expecting to find him there again, goes into the haram, looks around and sees him lying there in the same corner. He goes, come on, let's go. So he takes him again, puts him up in the guest quarters, gets him some food from the home, feeds him, gives him a place to stay, room and board. In the morning, Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu leaves again, and then brings him, uh, or Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu come back, comes back to the haram, third day now, Sits around, looking around, waiting, waiting. He just doesn't know what he's looking for, doesn't know exactly what to do. Another whole day passes, lies down again, Ali radiallahu anhu shows up again. And he says, need a place to stay? And he says, yes I do, thank you very much. And um, he goes with him, and this time on the way to the guest quarters or to the house, Ali radiallahu anhu asks him, if you don't mind, could you tell me what has brought you to Mecca? Because by this time now it's justified. He's proven to him, look, I'm, I'm only trying to help. But you kind of seem like you're stuck in this loop. So maybe I can help you out. I'm from here. So what brought you here to Mecca? He says, In a'taytani ahdan wa mithaqan laturshidanni fa'altu. He says that if you can promise me and give an oath to me that you will help me, then I can tell you. He says, فَفَعَلَ فَأَخْبَرَهُ Ali radiallahu anhu said, I swear to you, swear to God, you have nothing to worry about, you can trust me. So Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu tells him, this is why I came. I heard about a man, he says he's a prophet, he's a messenger, you know, a divine revelation comes to him from the heavens. 
And uh, I sent my brother, my brother kind of came across him, talked to him, or heard him at the very least, brought me some news back. It only increased my yearning and my thirst for this truth. So I came here and I'm just looking for him. So Ali radiallahu anhu says, إِنَّهُ حَقٍّ وَإِنَّهُ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ He says, he, that is the truth and he is Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So he says, فَإِذَا أَصْبَحْتَ فَاتَّبِعْنِي He goes, go ahead and stay here in the guest quarters tonight. When it's the morning time, early, early in the morning, when people are just kind of starting their day, and everybody's a little preoccupied with themselves, he goes, at that time, I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to come by the guest house. I want you to be ready, keeping a lookout for me. When you see me passing by, he says, I want you to start following after me. And he says that, فَإِنِّي He says, فَإِذَا أَصْبَحْتَ فَاتَّبِعْنِي You just start following me. فَإِنِّي إِنْ رَأَيْتُ شَيْءً أَخَافُ عَلَيْكَ قُمْتُ كَأَنِّي أُرِيقُ الْمَاءِ He says that, and if I see anything that kind of worries me, because you're not a towner, I don't want you to get in trouble, I don't want you to get picked off or killed or murdered or something, because that's going on here in Mecca. I'm going to pretend like I'm stopping to kind of look for some water or something like that. And... He said, you just kind of keep walking by. You just stay casual, you keep your pace, you just kind of keep going. And don't worry, I'll find you again, I'll get ahead of you somehow, you'll see me, don't worry, this is my town. It's my hood, I know what I'm doing. But that's the, that's the plan, that's the game plan here. So we're gonna go out. So he says, they set out and, And he goes, and keep on following me until I finally enter into somewhere and then you just enter in after me. So he says they did exactly that. حتى دخل على النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ودخل معه until Ali radiAllahu anhu reached the Prophet of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم and Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiAllahu anhu came in after Ali radiAllahu anhu to where the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم was and he sat down and he listened to what the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم had to say and the narration says that he accepted Islam sitting right then and there. He did not leave, he did not have need anything else, he accepted Islam right then and there. And then the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم, and some narrations say he actually stayed there for a couple of days in with the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم at the place of Arqam. And finally the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم told him, إِرْجَعِلَىٰ قَوْمِكَ فَأَخْبِرْهُمْ حَتَّى يَأْتِيَكَ أَمْرِي he said, go back to your people and tell them what I've told you until you hear something else from me. I will send word for you. I won't forget about you. I'll send word to you when something changes. But right now, you go back to your people and tell them. Abu Dhar anhu was a different kind of guy. If, if you want to put it into one word, Abu, Radi, Abu Dhar anhu was just one of those people that what the youngins, what some of the young people call today, he just had swag. Right, Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu was confident. Those people that are just very, very confident, not arrogant, because that's not a good quality, but just confident. Very, very decisive, very confident, just very sure of things. They know what they're doing, they know what they're about, and they're confident with what they do. Not, that doesn't mean they're not open to correction or learning, but when they take a course of action, just very confident with it. Abu Dhar radiallahu was a confident businessman, made a lot of money, he was very wealthy before Islam. When he wanted to learn about Islam, he was very confident, sent his brother, that was the same safe little thing to do, send the brother so he can keep running the business and be at home. But then that wasn't good enough, that wasn't his style, that's not how he rolled. So what did Abu Dhar radiallahu do? He just set off, without even packing, just set off, went to Mecca, just camped out in the haram. I'm not going back until I find out what I came to get. Now when he accepted Islam, he's confident. So he tells the Prophet ﷺ, So he says that, I swear by the one who sent you with truth, I will not go back until I proclaim my faith in the middle of all these people. I don't care what they think. I believe and that's good enough for me. So the narration says he goes to the masjid, to the haram, and he screams out, stands in the middle of the haram and he screams, Ashhadu wa la ilaha illallah wa anna Muhammad rasulullah. Screams it out. Now you can imagine, just imagine that as a scene playing out in your head. He walks in, just a man on a mission, just that conviction in every ounce of his body, in every cell of his being. Walks over to the middle of the haram and screams, Ashhadu wa la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammad rasulullah. 
And of course, to translate for everyone's benefit, I, I, I give testimony, I, I, I bear witness to the truth, the reality, the fact that there is no one worthy of worship, nothing worthy of worship but Allah. And I bear witness to the reality, the truth, the fact that Muhammad is the messenger of God. Imagine that, saying that with conviction, screaming it out, بِأَعْلَى with At the top of his lungs, screaming that out. And now you're expecting like something amazing is about to happen. Well, something did happen. People got up and they were like, are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? You know this is Makkah, right? You know this is Makkah, right? And he said the people got up, walked over to him and started to beat him, in, beat him into the ground. They started pummeling him. Like just, just ganged up on him. And started beating him to the ground to the point where it said they laid him out. And he was just in the middle of them, just a punching bag at this point. A kicking bag at this point. Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. Now we've talked about another one of the uncles of the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Lahab. So the uncles of the Prophet ﷺ, different uncles. You had Abu Talib, very supportive, very helpful. Just didn't accept the faith. You have Hamza and Abbas who would accept Islam. Later on, Hamza we talked about last week radiallahu anhu, Abbas radiallahu anhu later on eventually would accept Islam. And then you have Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab didn't support, didn't accept, and in fact he oppressed and he opposed. But see, you see the decency within people. Abbas radiallahu anhu was a soft-hearted man. Was a soft-hearted man and it shows that he was actually considering and at least listening and considering what the Prophet had to say. When he saw this happening, the narration says that Abbas ran. And Abbas is described as being very, very tall. Extremely tall. Not just tall by certain standards, no, like freakishly tall. There are narrations that talk about that when Abbas would sit on a mule, sometimes his feet would still touch the ground. So based off of those narrations, it says that in the battlefield, like when, that's why in the battle of Hunayn, it was Abbas who was screaming and rallying the troops. And it said that they literally saw him poking out of the crowd, like kind of like a flag. Him, himself. So based off of those narrations, you can kind of, um, you can assume that Abbas was, you know, really, really tall. Six foot six, six foot eight, seven feet tall, like a basketball player tall. Alright, like if, if he was on a basketball team, he'd be a center, that's how tall he was. So Abbas was very tall. And it said that he had a voice that was like a boombox, like he didn't, you know, like he wouldn't need a microphone. So when the Prophet wanted to sometimes announce something, like in a large crowd, he would say it, and Abbas would then say it for him again. And it was like an announcement, everybody till the end of the crowd could hear. So one of those people, tall, big old, deep, booming voice. So very commanding presence. And it said that Abbas literally tore through the crowd, went and laid down, covered up, laid down on top of Abu Dhar al-Ghifari Just covered him up. And because being so tall and so huge, he literally was like a tent. He just pitched over him, he just covered him up. And obviously it's Abbas, the son of Abdul Muttalib. So everybody immediately backed away. But Abbas radiallahu anhu was a smart man. So he says to these people, he says, Wailakum, what's wrong with you people? What's wrong with y'all? He says, don't you people know that he's from Ghifar? He's from the tribe of Ghifar? And that your route to do business in Bilad al-Sham, your route to do business in that region, which was a major part of the business because they would go there and sell goods that they had bought from like Yemen and they would buy more goods that they, in, in Sham and they would bring it back to sell in Mecca and Hijaz and then take it to Yemen. So it, it was very critical for them. He said, your business route goes through the tribe of Ghifar. So if you kill him here, the tribe of Ghifar is going to have it out for us. And you can consider business to be shut down. So you think about this. And immediately everybody just kind of dispersed from there. They're like, yeah, yeah, for real, for real. Like, you know, business, business, right? So everybody just kind of backed away from there. And they left him. I told you Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu had confidence. Just to the point of just where it's just, I got to do what I got to do. So it said that the next day, ثُمَّ عَادَ مِنَ الْغَدْ 
وفعل بمثلها فضربوه وثاروا إليه so he says the next day he woke up like kind of recovered that day kind of like you know we just cover recover a little bit lick your wounds he says he gets up the next day goes up back into the haram stands in the middle of the haram أشهدوا لا إله إلا الله وأشهدوا أن محمد رسول الله and everybody's like look at this guy he's here again he didn't get enough yesterday so everybody gets up all right here we go again everybody walked up and started just beating him up again فأكبل عباسه and again, Abbas goes and covers him up and again reprimands everybody. Like, what are y'all doing? Y'all are gonna kill him. You're gonna shut down business for everybody. Think a little bit here. Okay, fine, he's pissing you off. Alright, that's fine, I get it. But at the same time, think about the implications of your actions. And again, the people dispersed from there, and some of the narration say that he took him back to the Prophet. He said, talk some sense into him. He keeps showing up every single day and he gets beat up every single day. He's gonna die. I won't be there every single time to save him. Alright, kind of just get him under control a little bit. And eventually the Prophet talked to Abu Dhar al-Ghifari anhu and he kind of calmed down a little bit. This is something that I don't even know if the opportunity presents itself, but just to kind of you know, kind of tie off the story. I told you a little bit about the personality of Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, which is very confident, very wealthy, very educated before Islam, very proud of being Muslim after accepting Islam. And then as a Muslim, as a part of the Muslim community, just very, having a lot of strong convictions about what he did and what he believed in. And one of the things we learn about Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, of course he was one of the prime students of the Prophet He was very knowledgeable about the deen, about the religion. He was very knowledgeable, very wise. Many other sahaba, young sahaba, all types of sahaba would take counsel and advice from him. He was somebody very important to the ummah at that time. But one of the things, one of the perspectives, and it's actually said that the Prophet ﷺ, in a narration that Abu Dhar anhu narrates from the Prophet ﷺ, where he talks about how the dunya and wealth and money will never satisfy, never quench the hunger or the thirst, the desires of Banu Adam. And, and one other narration says, one other narration that Abu Dhar anhu narrates from the Prophet ﷺ, which he says that the Prophet ﷺ said that the, the son of Adam, this human being, he says, Mali, Mali, my, mine, my money, my wealth, my house, my car, my bank account, my, my, my. And the Prophet of Allah ﷺ says, and what, وَمَالَهُ What belongs to him? What is his? Except for the food that he eats, the clothes that he wears to the point where he wears them out so that they're tattered and they, they're completely done, like they're patched up and tattered or money that he gives into sadaqah, into charity. That belongs to him. Everything else that a human being has that he calls my, 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 فَإِنَّهُ tarikatun. Then it's just to be left behind for somebody else. It's something that's left behind. Either it'll exchange hands and go to somebody else, or it'll be inherited by, in, by his inheritors, by his family. But it doesn't belong to him. The only thing that actually ends up legitimately belonging to a human being is food that he eats and consumes and digests. Okay, that was his. He used it, legitimately used it up. Or clothes that he wore out to the point of just falling apart at the seams, that was his, he used it up completely. Or the wealth that he gave away in sadaqah and charity, that is his. Because that's a reward deposited for him in the hereafter, nothing else is his. It seems that because of these types of narrations, it had such a profound impact on him. That Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, again that confidence, manifested itself, that he became very, very strict in this regard. He became very strict in this regard. And he basically lived life with the philosophy that the food that you absolutely eat, like you will consume that food today, or the clothes that are just the clothes on your back, just to be able to cover your body respectfully. Aside from that, or the roof over your head, or the basic mode of transportation that you need, outside of this bare minimum, everything else that you have is unnecessary, is frivolous, and it is extravagance. And we will be questioned about this on the Day of Judgment, and it's a liability, and I can't live with that liability. 
He considered everything else. So the food that's on your plate, the clothes that are on your back, and maybe one extra pair of clothes, the one basic humble mode of transportation that you need to basically get around, and the basic minimum space that you need to live in, and house your family in. Outside of that, he considered everything else to be a liability, a spiritual liability. And he would, it said that literally outside of that amount, he would spend everything and anything else that he had in his possession every single day. He would empty it out, empty it out, empty it out. And he would not go to sleep with it still in his possession. That was his philosophy. And that's how he lived life. There's even a story and narration about a tabi'i going to Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu saying, you're one of the oldest, you know, and in and, and one narration, and this is, this has a reconciliation to it, but Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu says that I was the fourth person to accept Islam. The, the clarification for that is the fourth person that he knew in terms of his own personal knowledge. But it said that there were more than three other people who had accepted Islam at the time that he did. But he said that at that time based off of the people that he publicly knew who were Muslim. So he was, So somebody came to him, a tabi'i comes to him and says, you're one of the longest standing, oldest tenured veteran sahaba of the Prophet I mean, you're old school. So I want to learn from you. He told him, he said, listen, young, and I really don't think you're cut out for this. So he said, no, I want to learn from you. I want to live with you. I want to learn with you. I want to learn from you, and I will serve you. I'll do work. I'll pay my way. I'll, 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 I'll take care of myself, and I'll, I'll basically earn my stay, my keep. So he said, okay. Well, one thing that we conflate these days is we, we, we don't quite understand what learning really is. You know, if we went to somebody, to a sheikh, and we said, you know, I want to learn. And he said, okay, take out the garbage. You're like, I don't think you heard me. I think maybe I can, you know, maybe you need to update the hearing aid. I said, I want to learn. And he's like, yeah, go vacuum the masjid. Yeah, see, I, I'm a talibul Right, we kind of have like that, that bass in our voice when we say talibul And it echoes on in our head, talibul Right? And it's like, you, I'm not here to do menial labor. I'm here to learn. You know? And so we don't quite understand the two, but the first step of learning used to be khidmah. Because you have to be trained. You need a tarbiyah. The, 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 the soil has to be turned before you put a seed in the ground. These days we have hard hearts. And we just throw a bunch of knowledge on there. And it doesn't go nowhere. It just sits on top. Which what is a Quran example for knowledge just sitting on top? Himaran yahmilu asfaran, right? It's, it's, it's a donkey carrying books. That's what we are. We're just a hard service with a bunch of books sitting on top. We're a donkey. We're, we are the donkey carrying books. Or I am at the very least. May Allah forgive me and guide all of us. But you turn the soil, and when you turn the soil, then the seed goes in the ground. Then the water penetrates the earth. And then something beautiful first sprouts inside and then grows out. And that's something that doesn't go nowhere. And that's why the example that Allah gives for true knowledge and true iman in the Quran is It's a beautiful tree. Like the redwoods. Like these huge, magnificent, beautiful trees that are hundreds of years old. That are older than the people living on the earth. That's the example of true knowledge because when the seed goes inside and the water goes inside and the seed sprouts inside and grows out from there and is able to grab its roots, then, it's put, then it puts something out for the world to see and benefit from. But we're concerned about that outside part before the internal part. We don't worry about the internal part. We don't worry about having roots. We just want, every, we just want it on full display. And what happens to something that's just sitting on top of something? A little bit of wind can come and knock it over. A little bit of wind can come and carry it away. That's, that's the reality of it. But if something's in the ground... I mean, I, I remember one time this, this masjid in a small town, I think it's uh, somewhere in Arkansas, I forget the name of it now, um, Conway, Arkansas. No reason for me to even know that. But so I went to this small little masjid, small little community in Conway, Arkansas. And it was breathtaking. The masjid, there's a house, an old house that they bought and made into a masjid. In the front yard of the house, I'm not lying to you, you know, and, and you know, sometimes in the countryside in small places, you know, they, they have more land. So even if it's a small house, it's sitting on a pretty decent chunk of land. So if the front lawn of the house is maybe like half the size of this musallah right here, 
The front lawn was just like half the size of this one. So a lot of pretty big, generous front lawn so people could come up and park on the front lawn or in the driveway and things like that. Literally half of that was taken up by a tree stump. A quarter of that was taken up by a tree stump. That tree stump was so big that probably seven or eight of us could stand on it. Breathtaking. But it was just a tree stump. It was, it was probably about a foot off the ground. It was probably a foot, maybe two feet up off the ground. And or I think they kind of left the two feet just so you could put some chairs around and use it as a table or something. All right, so it was about two feet up off the ground. And it was huge, humongous. And I was just baffled by this. I was just looking at it, staring at it. And I actually ended up asking them. I was like, okay, this is kind of in the middle of your property. You could probably park more cars here, do some other stuff with this little you know, area. Why did you just kind of cut the tree off here? Why didn't you just take it out of the ground? They're like, yeah, you wish. Right, like, yes, yeah, so it was just that easy. Why don't we just take the tree out of the ground and go? He said, <laughs> he said that the roots of it are so deep that it'd be, we'd have to dig up like the entire like, house and the entire property. We'd have to dig up part of the street just to get the roots of this out of the ground. I said, subhanAllah. That's what deep roots are. And so that's what true learning is. So Abu Dhar, this man shows up by Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, radiallahu anhu, and he's like, all right, you want to learn? Well, you're going to start off by doing some work. We got we to gotta turn this oil. We got to get you ready to get this knowledge. And so he puts him to work. You know, kind of running some tasks, you know, looking after the animals, cleaning up the property, kind of just doing the tasks. And he tells him, he goes, part of your responsibility will be that when sometimes people come to get some sadaqah, get some zakat, get some charity, financial assistance. Sometimes people come to ask for financial assistance. They know it's Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu, great sahabi or rasul, the great sahabi of the Messenger sallallahu so they're going to come to get some, get some financial assistance. If I have something to offer to them, you must give them the best of what I own. The best of what I own has to be given to them. That's my policy, that's how I roll, that's what I do. And that will be your job and your responsibility as my personal assistant, as my student. You got to do what I ask you to do. What I'm asking you to do is when somebody comes to get some donations and I have something to give, you give them the best of what I have available. So somebody comes to ask for some financial assistance. Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu had two camels at that time. One was a big camel, one was a smaller camel. And the people basically like a group of families that come saying, we're very hungry, we're starving, we need some food. So he saw he had two camels, so he said, what they basically needed to do was take one of the camels, slaughter one of the camels, cut it up, distribute the meat amongst these poor, starving families. But Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu said that there's two camels. Uh, excuse me, the student, this young tabi'i, says there are two camels. One's big and strong and one's kind of smaller and weak. So he says since all they're going to do is eat the animal, the, we need the meat of the animal for them, why don't I give them the smaller, weaker animal? Because Abu Dhar requires one animal, but for the transportation for him and his family. And a bigger, stronger animal is more logical for transportation. Multiple people can ride on it, you can tie all your equipment on it, it makes sense. And the animal that's going to be eaten, let it be the smaller, weaker animal. So he gives a smaller, weaker animal. Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu is kind of taking an assessment kind of of the day's activities. Oh yeah, some families came, they were very starving, very hungry, they needed some food. So, you know, we gave one of the camels. He goes, didn't I have two camels? He goes, yeah. He goes, which camel did he give to them? And they said that the small old camel, the weak one. He goes, come here. what I tell you? what I tell you? He goes, you said to give the best thing available. And he goes, and that was this camel right here. He goes, but, but you know, transportation and you know, this. And I was thinking and you know, like, I'm, but you know, I was thinking this and I was thinking that. And that's usually a very dangerous line of thinking is to even think, right? At that point in time, at that place. So he says, no, 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 I asked you to do something. I don't care about your logic and your reasoning. He goes, will you stand on the day of judgment and answer on my behalf to Allah? about why I gave the smaller, weaker, older animal for some for hungry families to eat instead of the good, young, healthy, strong camel? Are you gonna answer for me on the Day of Judgment? Can you defend me before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? No, I didn't think so. So then you don't get to make that call. 
That was Abu Dhar That was how he was. And so the, the story basically about him goes that because he lived with this philosophy, and this shows you the human side of the Sahaba عنهم, that they were human beings. In his old age, like any elderly gentleman, or any elderly person for that matter, you know, people get a little bit older, they, they get a little bit short-tempered or a little bit short, you know, in their, in their tolerance sometimes with other people, and they get a little bit more easily angry or upset or frustrated. Just old age, naturally. So Abu Dhar anhu was an older man now, and he was alive till the time of the Khilaf of Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu. So because of that, Islam was spreading, the Sahaba, the, that, that era where it was a mix between initially in the time of Abu Bakr and the beginning era of Umar radiallahu anhuma, it was more Sahaba, lesser like other people like Tabi'un. And then eventually it kind of became equal halfway through the Khilaf of Umar radiallahu anhu. And towards the end of the Khilaf of Umar radiallahu anhu, it was more Tabi'un and lesser Sahaba. In the time of Uthman radiallahu anhu, it was continuing to go in the other direction. So in more and more tabi'un, they're obviously not sahaba, they weren't taught and trained by the Prophet ﷺ. Islam, the empire was spreading and spreading wide and far, the khilafah. So because of that, more money and more you know, spoils of war and just more natural resources were pouring into Medina from all different parts of these worlds. And so naturally Medina was becoming a little bit more well-to-do. People were a little bit more affluent. They weren't there in the early days of Mecca you know, to eat leaves off of trees and chew on date pits and be tortured near death. These were not the people. So obviously they were a little bit more comfortable in how they lived. And Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu being a little bit older of a gentleman, he just couldn't take it. And so it said that he would reprimand people. He sees somebody with some really nice baller clothes on, be like, what's, what's wrong with you? What are you wearing over there? Nice clothes, your shoes match your shirt, right? <laughs> Right, so he would start reprimanding. By the way, that was a shot at myself. But he said, you know, what's wrong with you? What are you doing over here? You see somebody with like, you know, riding a horse with another horse tied up to it? Are you kidding me? Seriously? Are you riding both horses at the same time? No, then why do you have two horses? Right? If he would see somebody hungry or somebody poor, he would just lose it. How is there a poor person in Medina when we got all these well-to-do people in Medina. How is it possible there's a poor person? He would just, he would get really angry and upset and frustrated. And so it's actually said that Uthman anhu, because community first, and because they were brothers, they had been there since the early days of Makkah. So he had the ability to go and sit down with him. And he's like, what's going on Abu Dhar? He's like, nothing man bro, what's going on with you? I miss the days of the Prophet And he goes, I know you do. We all do, but I know that you do. Because everybody knows that you do. Because he's just so upset. He said, listen, look, it is what it is. Um, and look, what these people are doing is not impermissible, it's not haram. And it's my job as the leader of the community to manage the whole community. Different people, different backgrounds, different levels of practicing, different levels of taqwa. Look, nobody's doing something haram. But these are different levels of taqwa. And that's gonna be there in the community. And that's my job to manage the community. But I understand you're frustrated and I respect your right to be frustrated, but you're causing a little bit of disruption in the community. So I'm gonna need you to tone it down. But see, the problem is I've known you for 20 years, so I know you can't tone it down. You're Abu Dhar, that's how you roll. So here's the best scenario. Why don't you go and take up a residence outside of Medina, kind of like a retirement-like plan, go live on the ranch, go live on the farm, retirement plan. You go live out there, everything will be taken care of. You come back and visit regularly, I'll come visit you. All of us old guys will get together. We'll still do our thing, but it will just provide you some peace of mind. And it will make a little bit running of the community a little bit easier for me. Because people respect you, nobody wants to disrespect you. You're Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu. But you gotta understand, you're putting me in a tight spot here. And it's not healthy for you either to be so upset all the time. And so Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu moved a little bit outside of Medina and basically lived out his days there. And that's the story of Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu who accepted Islam in those early days. Um, I told you I would keep it short. I'm just gonna cover this one last quick little story. It's a very short story. And uh, we'll inshallah end with that. And uh, so that next week we can move on to a new topic. 
There's a story about another man in those early days of Mecca accepting Islam. It's a very fascinating story. That's why I want to tell this particular story. Uh, this is the story of Limad. Limad radiallahu anhu. Um, it's said about Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu narrates this. Imam Muslim mentions this particular narration in his Sahih. This is from the Sahih of Imam Muslim rahimahullah ta'ala. Um, that this man named Limad came to Mecca. And it said that this man Limad was from Yemen. He was from one of the tribes of Yemen. So he had traveled out to Mecca. And he was very well known for being um, what would they would call in at that time like a soothsayer. Um, kind of, I guess you could call it kind of like a gin buster. Right? So, you know, if somebody had like any, you know, gin related issues or there was some black magic type of spooky stuff going on or something like that, then he was basically the person that would be called in to kind of handle the situation. If somebody got very, very sick and, you know, people were very superstitious before Islam. So in their superstitions, if they thought this was some evil effect or evil omen or something like that, Dimad was the kind of guy that you called in and he would do his little, you know, hocus pocus, dance around, spit on the guy do whatever he did to basically take away whatever evil effect was going on. That's what Limad did, that's, that was his business, that's what he did. So he comes to Mecca, I guess for business, just to see if anybody needs any uh, help in that area. And he heard some, you know, some of the, 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 the hooligans, you know, some of the street people, you know, some of the troublemakers on the street, because, you know, when you kind of work in that line of business, then you kind of move around some dark alleys and things like that. So Dimad was very comfortable in that whole scene. He was, cra- he was comfortable being around crazy people. So he's kind of walking around at night through some dark alleys, and he hears some shady characters or some, you know, troublemakers and stuff talking about the Prophet Wasallam. They're talking about, in the Muhammad Majnoon, they're talking about how Muhammad is crazy. You heard about this, you heard about that. Well, a'adhu billah, they're talking in this way. So he goes up to some of them and he goes, Aina hadha rajul, where can I find this guy that you're talking about that is this crazy and he's causing this many problems? Hopefully maybe I can provide a little bit of relief for his insanity. Because that's what I do, you know, it's probably some jinn, some crazy stuff going on. So he says, he narrates his narration himself, he says, فَلَقِيتُ Muhammadan." So I finally found out where can I find this man so I can help him out. And I meet the Prophet and you know, like somebody does in that line of work, you know, like he's like an insurance salesman, right? So he kind of pulls out his card and he goes, my name is Dimad, you know, I can, I, I, I help people. That's what I do, I help people. So I, why, don't I, why don't I try to help you? I think you look like you could some, use some help. You know, I heard, I heard some stuff about you and maybe you could use some of my assistance. So the Prophet of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, so he, he tells him, maybe I can help you. Tell me what's going on with you. Tell me, tell me, tell me what's going on with you. Why not diagnose you? I'll help you, I'll fix you. So the Prophet ﷺ says, Inna alhamdulillah. Nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu. May yahdillahu fala mudillala. Wa may yudlil fala hadiyala. Ashhadu wa la ilaha illallah. Wahdahu la sharika lahu. The Prophet of Allah ﷺ says, Without a shred of a doubt, the ultimate praise was and will always be for Allah alone. We praise Him and we seek His assistance. We ask Him for help in everything we do. Whoever, whomsoever Allah guides, there's not a force on this earth that can misguide Him. And whoever Allah misguides, leads astray, there's not a force on this earth that can give guidance to that person. I bear witness and I give testimony that this Allah that I speak of, there's nothing and no one worthy of worship except for Him. And I, and wahdahu la sharika lahu. And He is absolutely unique in this regard, and He has absolutely no partners in any way, shape, or form. And the Prophet ﷺ said this. The narration says, Dimad looks at the Prophet ﷺ, and he says, A'id alayya kalimatika ha'ula. Say it again. And the Prophet ﷺ says, okay. Remember, Dimad's that guy, right? Walks up with this card, hey, my name's Dimad, I help people. Right? And now the Prophet ﷺ drops these words on him, and Dimad's like, say, say, say it again, say it again. And the Prophet ﷺ says, okay, relax, it's okay. Inna alhamdulillah. Nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu. Man yahdihillah fala mudillana. Wa man yudlil fala hadiyana. Ashhadu wa la ilaha illallah. Wahdahu la sharika 
The narration says, Dhimad says, Say it, say it again. And some narrations say that he even said, فَقَدْ بَلَغْنَا نَعُوسَ It's an expression in Arabic that literally translates to because these words have reached the middle of the ocean. Which basically what it means is, it's blowing my mind. These are, this is the most mind-blowing thing I've ever heard. This is more powerful than anything I've ever heard in my entire life. You have to say it again. Please say it again. And it said the third time the Prophet ﷺ said, Inna alhamdulillah. Nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu. Man yahdihillah fala mudillala. Wa man yudlil fala hadiyala. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharikala. And by the time, the third time the Prophet ﷺ said this, Dhimad finally felt like like he had gotten something. And he said, لَقَدْ سَمِعْتُ قَوْلَ الْكَاهِنَةِ وَقَوْلَ السَّحَرَةِ وَقَوْلَ الشُّعَرَةِ He says, I have heard the words of soothsayers. Soothsayers, like, you know, exorcists, soothsayers. I have heard the words of magicians, sorcerers and magicians. I have heard the words of poets. فَمَا سَمِعْتُ مِثْلَ هَؤُلَاءِ الْكَلِمَاتِ I have never heard anything like this ever before in my life. And then look what he says, فَهَلُمَّ yadaka, Give me your hand. Before he wanted the hand of the Prophet so he could diagnose him, he could check him, see what was wrong with him. Now he says, please give me your hand. أُبَايُعُكَ عَلَى الْإِسْلَامِ So I can give you the, the oath and the pledge of Islam. Like I can accept Islam on your hand, holding your hand in between my hands. Please give me your hand. فَبَايَعَهُ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم. The Prophet ﷺ held his hand and made him say the shahada and gave him Islam, like gave him the shahada and allowed him to accept Islam. And then he said, وَعَلَىٰ قَوْمِكَ Will you also take this message to your people and make sure that your people accept Islam in the same way you just accepted Islam? He said, وَعَلَىٰ قَوْمِ He goes, yes, I promise you, I will take this to my people and I'm confident that they will accept Islam and they will listen to me and I will not stop, I will not rest until they've all accepted Islam. It said that many, many years later, many years later, this is in the Medinan days, that many years later, the Prophet of Allah sent out a group of Sahaba to go and preach and take the message and along their journey, and they, they were sent out in the direction in which Dhimad's tribe lived in. So they went and they passed by the people of Dhimad. And the Amir of the Jaish, the Amir of the Sariya, the Jaish, he asked his people, Hal asabtum min qawmi shay'an? So they were camped out near this tribe. And before they were about to leave, they said, Did any one of you take anything from these people? Did anybody take anything from these people? And one man said that, Yes, I took something. He said that I took basically a lota from these people. Alright, a mathara or mithara, excuse me, in the Arabic language refers to a small little container that can be used to fill up with some water to clean oneself from. You know, use maybe while going to the restroom and even make wudu from and things like that. So he said, you know, for those who know the Urdu terminology, it's called lota. Alright, so he said a water jug, a small little water jug that's used for purification purposes. So one guy said, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, we, we went into town and we were kind of, you know, buying or taking care of anything thing we needed and I saw like a little water container in maybe you know in the public area where there was water where there was a water pump there was a little water container there so I took it because we need it the the leader of the army said go and return it back to them I mean generally speaking you have to return it back to them but then specifically he said he says return it back to them especially because these are the people of Dhimad that man that came to the Prophet ﷺ and accepted Islam with the Prophet ﷺ, held the hand of the Prophet ﷺ, 
and swore his allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ and swore that he would take the message back to his people until all of his people also accepted Islam and became loyal to the Prophet ﷺ as well. So go back and return this water container, this lota, back to the people of Dimad. And so that's another little interesting, touching early story from the early days of Mecca about one of the very unique, interesting people who accepted Islam. Uh, we'll go ahead and end here. I know I would make, I said I would make it a little bit shorter, but what are you going to do? We talk about the Prophet Wasallam. Really don't care about watching election coverage, and plus, when you go back, they're probably still going to be talking about it. So, may Allah Subhanahu wa Taala accept from all of us. May Allah Subhanahu wa Taala bring us closer to the example of the Prophet sallallahu and may Allah grant us all the love for Allah and His Messenger sallallahu wa bihamdihi, Subhanallah wa bihamdik, Nashhadu la ilaha illa anta, Nasakfirka wa nataqulik.